Welcome back to the Pod of Greed. That's right. Another week, another chance to talk about Yu-Gi-Oh! and everything else. Or at least ramble incoherently as you guys pretend to understand. Yeah, definitely got to say, uh, a lot of positive reception in the last episode. I want to be... What? Did something special happen last episode? I ranted a lot. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I want to be clear, by the way. I didn't, you know... I, I, the rant was from the heart, so like I wasn't like faking it. Yeah, he just, meant really everything he said on God, for real, for real. I, I got very, you know, I get very passionate about Yu-Gi-Oh! So um, I know some people uh, don't always like to hear the complaining and all that stuff, and I get it, but uh, it does come from a good place. Hopefully this week we won't have to. You know, I have we'll nothing to complain about Yu-Gi-Oh! Good to hear. All right, so Yu-Gi-Oh! News. Uh... Where to start? Uh, okay, first, I got to say this. I am sick. No, no. I, 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 yeah, and, I don't have anything to complain yeah, about. Yeah, it seems like it's okay this this week. Oh, so, because uh, what? I mean. Duel is Nexus. Yeah, Dune. Um, D-U-N-E. That's the Sneak acronym. Peaks were last weekend. Seems like it's a cool set. I actually was uh, at the card shop earlier today, and I got to see the packs in person for the first time. What were you doing at the card shop? I was buying packs. That's all you get to know. Okay. Mm. Yeah, the card packs look really cool. Like, I know it's like a random thing to compliment, but when I saw the Duelist Nexus, I don't know if it's like, just, it's the font and the coloring. I gotta look it or up. Whatever. I haven't seen them yet. But they they just, it looks very clean and very like kind of minimalist and modern. Like, not extremely so. Like, it's definitely still Yu-Gi-Oh! But I guess it's just not as busy looking as past, um, past sets have looked. This looks better to you? You don't like it? Well, I don't know. I just don't feel like it's much better than before. You'll have to see it in person. Just trust me. Like, when you see it in person next to, like, a bunch of other Yu-Gi-Oh! packs, you'll be like, huh, this is definitely different. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you'll like it, but you'll definitely be like, hmm, it it has a different vibe. So, as for what comes in it, uh, I mean, I haven't heard, I know, like, people want, what is the new, is it Road Synchron? What is it called? Revolution Revolution Synchron's, the, the pink one. Pink? Not pink one. It's it's yellow. Yes. There's a pink. It looks like little power tool. You're thinking of a wheel synchron. Yeah, wheel synchron. Like you say, it's a dual runner. Yeah. Okay. But it's anthropomorphized. I believe that's like kind of the the chase card, like kind of meta thing that people want. It might be the only thing people want. Yeah. It seems like prices and stuff for the set aren't super high. I know there's been a lot of conversation, really more so around Age of Overlord as the yeah the kind of big pack with the. The shiny new stuff, kind of the more meta-changing set. I have liked some of the things that they've shown in those leaks. That said, though, um, this one's got a lot of quarter-century secrets. Um, from first look, I I think quarter-century secrets are okay. What's the difference between a quarter-century and a starlight rare? I mean, ratio-wise, no clue. It seems like they're easier to pull from what I have seen. In terms of looks, I mean, like... I guess I'd have to kind of compare them, like, head-to-head. Head. Side by they side. They look very similar. I know that the quarter century ones have the little imprint, like a quarter century in the effect text box. I do like that. That's cool. So, um, yeah. I mean, I don't know. So that's out. I didn't get to go to a sneak peek. I know I had wanted to, but it turns out our shop was not having one. Sucks. However, um, just getting to see the pack now, I think it looks cool. I think it's a little bit more maybe of, like, a anime ish feeling pack like there's crimson dragon and like those sort of things it's so five d's pack so um are you building anything in it that you now that you've like gotten a bit more time to like look into the cards well definitely going to be uh changing up my synchron deck that's like number one um and 
other than that. And you do have a Synchron.com. Yeah, well, it's not really together. I've been collecting Synchrons for um, many uh, series at this point. And I've just been kind of putting them all together, promising that I'd build the deck. Because I built one in Master Duel, but I just never did in real life. What stops you from doing it? Uh, I don't know. It just, uh, you know, you have to build decks like Synchrons with intention. These are these are combo decks. You can't, it's not like a control deck, so you can kind of slap cards in together, and then you can just see what works with the engine. Yeah, combo decks are a little more... Yeah, it's everything. Everything's a, it's a puzzle piece. Everything's a puzzle piece, and so you have to be kind of... Uh, you have to really think about what you're putting in. So basically what stopped me is I haven't put the time and thought into what I want my end boards to look like for my Synchron deck, which will decide what goes in my Synchron deck. Yeah, I've always found combo decks to just kind of be... Not intimidating, but it's like a lot of effort. Like I don't really really like, okay, to learn this long, long, long combo. I'd kind of rather play something mid range. That's usually been my preference. Not that I won't play combo decks, but just that given the choice, you know, I kind of tend to gravitate away from them. I mean, I'm not the biggest fan, but uh, I I learned some uh, little simple like synchron doppelwarrior combos from like a year ago, and I'd like to you know actually use those. Yeah. Um. Let's see. Any other Yu-Gi-Oh? I actually. So I saw the 2023 tins. Have you seen the design for these? I don't even know the names of the 2023 tins. Yeah, I don't. I think these actually been announced a while back, but it's the 25th anniversary tin dueling heroes. Dueling, um, like oh, two, oh dueling as in duel, as in like. Yeah, the dueling heroes, and okay. so basically, um, it's gonna be you know coming out, and it looks like it's got. Six prismatic secret rares, six ultra rares, three supers, three rares, and 36 commons per 10, plus a quarter century secret rare that's guaranteed. So that's a kind of a cool thing. I'm guessing the guarantees are the ace monsters. I think so. And so you get reprint sets from things like Battle of Chaos, Dimension Force, Darkwing Blast, Tactical Masters, the Grand Creators, and more. And the quarter century secret rare version of one of the 16 monsters decorating the sides of the tens, some of the most famous and iconic monsters used by the series Dueling Heroes. Freeze. Sixteen? What monster what 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 sixteen yeah. monsters do they have? So the cover uh has of course all of the protagonists outside of I guess um Hugo's the one from Rushdul, right? No. What's his name? What is his name? Who is the Rushdul protagonist's name? I forget his name. I forgot his name too. Okay, well he's not on the ten, but it's basically yeah, like you know, Yugi, Yusei, uh, Yuma, Yuya, Yusaku, and Jaden. And so anyways, just from what I can see from the preview image, there's like Dark Magician, Exodia, Red Eyes, Rainbow Dragon, Cyber Dragon, Neos. And then if you look on the sides, I see Firewall Dragon, something I can't quite make out. And that's about it. So it's going to just kind of be Ace Monsters and Ace Adjacent, probably some Utopia forms, that kind of thing. I wonder if they'll do all pieces of Exodia in 25th anniversary. I think that they would need to. Like, be, yeah. to not do that would be a bit of a... I mean, you know. But then again, with that that still wouldn't be the most valuable Exodia said, would it? I know they... Uh, what was it, like a year or two ago, they did the Exodia Starlight rare ones in the, yeah. the Battles of Legend last year, I think. So Wait, Were they Starlight or were they... Um... They were Starlight. Oh, okay. I thought they had like the Pharaoh's rare thing. I don't remember. I know Ruxin was doing. I just remember like watching him do like a live stream or whatever. Just like when will I pull all the Exodia pieces thing? So, so I was like, oh okay, that's cool. 
I know I want the quarter century Neos. That's my uh, that's my target and my goal. That reminds me. So I was on Twitter the other day. And Red Eyes. And I saw all these Orica cards that looked like retrains of the protagonist ace monsters. I'm still mad about that. Yeah, and I showed you and like I really thought they were real. Right. On first glance, they looked real. Yeah, I'm gonna have to find them. If I can find them, I'll put the image up on screen. If I can't, I'm sorry. On but second glance. Of course they were fake. Well, the art style looked so believable. The art was and clean. I guess the, the like, rendering on the, the cards and the card the render template. looked like almost exactly like something like Konami Japan would have put out. Yeah, it looked like a like, like a, just a leak from the. I OCG. don't fault you for falling for it, but I do fault you for showing it to me. Okay, I'll take I'll I'll take the L on that. I know. I mean, I looked at it and I was like, oh, okay, this will be like some new thing in Animation Chronicle, and it just it wasn't. So, because that was a cool Neos design. Yeah, it was. I don't know what it was. I'm trying cool. to think. Um, I mean, I feel like a lot of the discourse this week that I've seen for Yu-Gi-Oh! has largely just been um, continuations of last week. Like, everybody seems to kind of be talking about, you know, is Yu-Gi-Oh! too hard or too complicated or what does it need to do? I've seen a lot more, like, arguments break out on Twitter over it. Um, yeah. I remember, um, actually, just yesterday, we were looking at a, um, this guy's, a guy made a cube on Reddit. And the, the goal of the cube was to introduce people to Yu-Gi-Oh, and you know I thought it was I thought it was a great idea. I said, "Oh man, this could be really cool. Maybe we should play it on the channel." And then I started looking at the cube, and yeah. it was just cards from like the first like three sets of Yu-Gi-Oh. Oh, so it was still kind of the classic. And see, I think that's always going to be the trouble with like making a a like. So he, he was, like, marketing it, I guess, as, like, a teaching cube, right? Yeah, it was, like, a, a way to, to teach, teach someone the game. But See, it's tricky because it's like what I was saying about those starter decks that they're supposed to be releasing later. you got to be careful because, like, you don't want the starter deck to misrepresent Yu-Gi-Oh. Yeah. Like, it still needs to have elements of, like, doing more than one summon in a turn and, like, kind of what Link summoning is and what, you know, Xyz summoning stuff is. But like, you just don't want to go overboard. Because as much fun as I've had playing, like, older Yu-Gi-Oh formats... If you're getting someone into the game today, I don't think we should mislead them with the promise of, well, you can normal summon a monster this turn and then tribute it next turn. Yeah, it's like, like that doesn't. <laughs> let's be realistic, right? It's like, like, that's not going to happen. Not not likely. I mean, I will say, um, I think a cube or a draft or like a battle pack. Bring that back, Konami, please. Would be. Those would all be like really cool potential things. Yeah, we've had a lot of fun with the battle packs. I remember I that was always. I love playing battle pack one, and battle pack three. Battle pack two isn't my favorite. Yeah, battle pack two is a little bit harder to balance because the one with like the big monsters and it's kind of that's the theme, but it's a little bit tricky. Battle pack, but that one does have ancient gear golem. True. Speaking of Ancient Gear Golem, we did start a new series. It's up on the channel now. It's live. We can talk about it. It's live, yeah. A Slifer Slackers in the house. Slifer Slackers, sequel to Rare Hunters for those who watched it and enjoyed it. Um, we changed only a couple of the rules. We can talk about it a little bit here. Yeah, I mean, I don't wait. Oh, yeah. The main thing is the winner now gets to pick whatever card they get from the loser so that the loser just doesn't wager a useless card. Oh, yeah, I guess for anybody who's, like, maybe hearing about this for the first time, I'd be surprised. But, yeah, Rare Hunters was a series we did, like, kind of last year and early this year where we would go through all the classic Yu-Gi-Oh! packs. And each episode, we'd open a box of them and, um, like, 12 packs each, build decks. We went from, what, Legend of Blue Eyes all, to all the way Eternity. to... Yeah, Flaming Eternity. Yeah, and so we'd build decks, and then, the like, the theme was, you kind know, of Rare Hunters. So if you lost, then you had to, 
give up your rarest card, which early on was a lot of fun. Although, like, at some points it got a little... Because you can't control what you pull from the packs. And, and you quickly realize oftentimes your rarest card was not your best card. Yeah. Like, there was, like, one episode where I pulled the Dark Magician Girl, which was, like, an epic pull. But, like, staking it as my rarest card kind of actually could feel weird. Or, like, weird ones where, like, you pulled Blue Eyes Toon Dragon... But for me yep. to win Blue Eyes Toon Dragon from you wouldn't really mean anything because like I don't have Toon World and I like passed the chance to pull it. So sometimes the best cards in a set were like supers and like sometimes even commons. Yeah, so we just decided that the winner picks the loser's card, and there's some small limitations on like what they can and can't pick. So, so they can't break the other person's deck. But yeah, that was one thing we added starter decks, the GX starter decks into the mix. You know, the one with uh, Blade Edge and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that one. Yeah, it just gives us some staples off the. It has rip. brain control in it. Yeah, pretty insane, like brain control. Um, among other decent cards, and um, we're also getting reprint packs of Dark Revelations three. Yeah, just uh, inject some more just powerful like older cards into the into that card pool as we move through GX because um, certain set, sets can fall flat, and but we don't want any of the duels to ever feel flat. Yeah, our goal is just to try to kind of make it as entertaining and just give us a, as wide a range of cards. We don't want boring duels. We want interesting duels, you know. Because, I mean, we can turn nothing into something. I mean, with the first Rare Hunters run, I mean, you guys you guys have seen some of those sets, and we've still managed to have this, these uh, epic games. Yeah. But it's not easy. But yeah, sometimes it's, like, not, you know, it doesn't. It's also, like, kind of an issue, too, with old-school Yu-Gi-Oh, where um, as much as I love kind of what people call Caveman Yu-Gi-Oh, it can have its, like, slower or more dull points. So, you know. We always try to make an effort to at least give ourselves decent enough cards that our decks can kind of some self-expression in the decks, right? And we never pull like enough blowout cards to ever. Um, the games never really feel one-sided. We don't. We never pull yeah. that well. Now, uh, so yeah, so check that out. It's all over in the main mm-hmm. channel. Um, we're gonna be trying to upload a new one every couple weeks. Every two weeks is the goal. But I will say right now, those old packs are expensive. Uh, so yeah, guys, it's no joke. So, like, uh, we'll see how far we get before we have to start begging or something. We start, we tap out. But, yeah. Man, getting old school Yu-Gi-Oh packs, it's, it's cathartic. But I always feel like I'm, like, just destroying a piece of history when we need to rip these old packs open. I mean, in a way, but we're also recording it. That's I'm true. There's it documentation. Online. It's documented. It's documented that we're destroying history. It is crazy, I guess. Do you ever consider that, like... Like, I, I suppose that's, like, part of the price of, like, those old school cards. But, like, no one was really recording themselves opening packs back in 2000 and whatever. You know what I mean? No. Uh, I mean, back in, the, back in the day, cell phones weren't even a thing, so. Yeah, like, was, you wouldn't really have, like, a phone. You probably didn't have a camera. There was no YouTube for a lot of that period of time. And so, like, basically, you, um, it's just weird. Like, I guess, like, you're just opening your, like, imagine you're just a kid and you're just opening these Metal Raiders packs. And, like, there's no, and, like. There's no documentation, so like it never happened, quote unquote. You know what I mean? Like it just yeah to I mean, anyone but the cards person that are doing unaccounted it. for, right? Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, there are first edition Legend of Blue Eyes, Blue Eyes White Dragon cards that are in the wind. Yeah. No one knows what happened to them. They're probably all damaged, but you know, there's no idea. We have no idea how many of those exist in the world. Right. This isn't like the TV show when it's like there are four Blue Eyes White Dragons rip and now this one can't be used against me yeah it's um it's kind of interesting so here's also something else that's kind of new that i saw uh, people were talking about on twitter was 
I'm pulling it up right now, but Konami actually gave an official name to kind of what players have usually called inherent summons. So as you guys know, special summons kind of come into two groups. There's effects that special summon cards. Right. And then there are cards that kind of just summon themselves. Yeah, with the uh, effect that's in the text. Yeah, and so that would be like, you know, your cyber dragon, dark arm dragon, whatever. Or maybe like blacklister soldier. They don't start a chain. And up to now, people have always kind of used just different community-made terms, but the one that we kind of have settled on the most is like an inherent summon. That's right. And it's a little bit tricky, though, because when you're explaining that to a new person... Like, yeah, like you can't negate this because this is an inherent summon. And it's nowhere in the rule book. And, like, it's not really something the rule book ever said. It was just, like, it's just how it functions. And so um, it seems like, according to Konami's website, at least on the Konami EU site, I don't know if this is actually on the U.S. site, but it says that special summons fall into two groups. One, effects that summon. This includes monsters that special summon using a flip, ignition, quick, or trigger effect, like Mystic Tomato. It also includes spell and traps that summon a monster, like Monster Reborn. All of these effects and cards start a chain. And the second one is built-in summons, and that is their term for it. These are monsters that can special summon themselves in a special way that doesn't start a chain. This includes cards like Cyber Dragon. Xyz summons, Synchro summons, and Contact Fusions are also part of this group. That's right. And so I thought that this was a really good... Like, you know, like since there's so much of the discourse lately, it's been like, you know, Yu-Gi-Oh cards are so wordy and like rules are so confusing. It's kind of nice to see Konami sort of giving, I guess, an official like name to this. So something that we can actually um, reference when explaining these mechanics. I still remember when because it was Paul who first told me about Inherent Summons. Because, uh, I mean, I've, I've been playing Yu-Gi-Oh! Ultra casually on and off for years. And I didn't really know all the rules and... uh I remember I was trying to activate, was it White Horn of Heaven or Black Horn of Oh, Heaven? yeah, the Horn of Heaven. We were always. dueling in the dorm, and I yeah. had the horn, I activated it, and you were like, nah, you actually can't use this. This only works on Inherent Summons. And I was like, I don't even know what an Inherent Summon is. I know, and I hate that. It's always that kind of moment of teaching where it's like, oh, well, Inherent Summons aren't really actually, you know, so. And the thing is, actually, even when he explained it to me, I still didn't quite get it. So the simplest thing I could do was I just took all the Horn of Heavens out my decks. So I was like, I'm not going to... I'm not going to worry about it. You know, yeah. if they can only be used for a specific type of special, I, I don't care. It's gone. Yeah. Now. And I know that's kind of what a lot of people will do. They just, it just, it can be a little bit confusing for sure. I put so, bottomless back in. So now they're calling them built in summons, which I will say I think is a, a good choice. It's quick and easy to say. It's a built in summon. Yeah. Built in. As opposed to like an inherent and summon. And it does. And it's a little clearer than inherent. Some people don't have the vocabulary to understand what inherent means inherently. But, uh, a built-in built-in summon is just a bit quicker to the point. Mm-hmm. It's built into the card, you know, the card summons itself. The harder part, I think, is when people don't still don't quite understand it. Doesn't that doesn't start a chain, right? Like it doesn't yeah, that still kind of gets a little bit like you can't like chain to it, just trying to happen. But anything that even makes you go a little bit easier to kind of digest, I'll. I'll take it. Right. I, I don't like that there are cards that will summon out the hand, but some are inherent summons and some aren't. That's always that, very annoying. That is all about the wording of the card. They're doing this. They'll do the same thing. You'll be summoning. You'll be special summoning a card from your hand, but depending on the wording, it's either an inherent summon or it's not. So that's actually that reminds me. There was a Twitter thread kind of recently. I'd made one, and I've also seen other ones about it. About like card text and how like lengthy card text can be, or like how it should be formatted. 
And the and so some people, you know, have different opinions. Some people say like they should try to use keywords. Some people say they should use symbols or just use bullet points or just try to like make these cars less wordy or whatever. And the conclusion that I kind of have come to around that is usually that I think that problem solving card text is written so well that like it's very difficult to like misunderstand it once you know the mechanics of everything. Yeah, once you know like, when you how know it, it works, it's, it's it very works mechanically like you know, intuitive, but just that it's really more so the formatting of the text box. Like the fact that they just, they cram all the text just into a, a paragraph. A and because they, they aren't like, the font size is small and it's always got to be in one box. They don't ever do like line breaks. No, there's rare. Or rarely. Uh, yeah, we've rarely seen line breaks. We don't like using bullet points too much. And I've always thought that, that would be, like that's what I think would be the best way to manage these things because when it's all one effect, it's like it's just so easy to like. You just miss something. You just miss something, or not, or not really know what you're looking for. Because uh, sometimes you know, cards will have certain clauses at the beginning and some certain clauses at the end, I know, I know. and you might be expecting a, a, a. You're looking for like the once per turn clause on a card, but you might miss it if you're looking for it at the beginning. Because sometimes cards will say at the event, you know, at the end, mm -hmm. you know, this card's first and second effects can only be used. Uh, yada yada yeah, yada, 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 yada. Those are like each of the following. But then other times it'll be at the end. I've never actually understood why Konami, like if there's like a syntax kind of functional reason why some is the end and some is the beginning, but it can make it really tough, especially. You're just trying to like scan cards quickly to figure out yeah. what they do. The, the use case that I always bring up is, so people will say like, okay, read your cards, right? That's good common knowledge, but it's usually less about reading your own cards and more about when you're playing against something for the first time mm -hmm. and you have to like, quickly kind of scan it and see like what stuff does because like okay your opponent summoned red eyes dark dragoon and you're like okay what the hell does this huge ass thing do and it has like plenty three kind of different things that you need to know but it's like because it's all just one paragraph it's like i can't like ugh, i gotta like just find it and so Yu-Gi-Oh really does test your your reading comprehension skills because then you have to read that little like block of a paragraph parse out the important bits because you have to be like Take Dragoon, right? You have to read it. And then in your mind, section it off is it does this, that, and that. that yeah. Like these are the three effects like, and kind of how they work. Those are the three things. This is one people per suggested card, once per turn, yada, yada, yada. Some people said like color coding. I did see an example where somebody. Color coding. Yeah, somebody. So they took a card and they basically um, like just kind of like, like as if you were having like cover, colored highlighters and like highlighting them. Obviously, that's not something they can really do in printing, I guess. They probably wouldn't. But like. It made it, it was so surprising. They took an existing card, like did the highlighter effect on the different effects, and it was suddenly so much easier to like, just, okay, one, two, three. Like it's just three different things. My only issue with that is, uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of an obvious problem, or maybe it's not so obvious, like with, like colorblindness. Like, yeah. I don't know how you that do way. a like color coding system for people who are colorblind. It would, what it really comes down to, I think, is just it needs bullet points. Like, I think that's the most, like, practical... Yeah, little dots are... Yeah, they're simple. There's also something I noticed that other card games do that... Other card games, like, have uh, bolder fonts, like a thicker font. Yeah. Yu-Gi-Oh's font is very thin. It is very thin. And so it doesn't help that... Yeah, I just... I think that's probably something that would be nice to change. it's so funny. Yu-Gi-Oh fonts are so thin when printing has <laughs> kind of gone awry on certain cards... And like you know, there's sometimes the, the text is faded. Whole words will be missing because it's there so wasn't thin. that much ink to begin with. Yeah. So I think, and something else is 
this is the last thing I'll say on this. So I don't get into another rant here, but um, I think using the name of a card when they say things like you can only activate the effect of Eldritch, the golden Lord once per turn. I wish there was like a slightly shorter hand way to say, like just to say that. I don't know what that would be, so I'm not going to, but like, what if, cause like, what if they just like re- resorted to like an acronym? I don't know. I don't know. Cause I was reading a card today. It was like Ringo worm or whatever. Ooh. The one from, it's from like Cyberstorm Axis. It's like Ringo worm, the dragon guarding the 100 apples or something like that. Oh, worm as in W U R M. W U R M. Yeah. Okay. And it's like Ringo worm. I was thinking the of the stuff you dragon guarding the, 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 the hundred apples or something like that. And then it's like in his effect, they also have to say, you could only activate the effect of Ringo Worm, the Guardian of the Hundred Apples, once per turn. And it's just like, it, that always feels like a little bit, because that's like literally a whole line or like line and a half that you just have to kind of tack on to the end of like an already kind of a wordy card. I do wish that in the, uh, in the, I guess, advanced format of Yu-Gi-Oh, we had that kind of rush duels rule where all cards are just inherently once per turn. I know. They don't they never write once per turn in rush duels because all cards are once per turn. I know we can't do that because we have certain cards that are once per turn and some cards that aren't and some cards have heart once per turns. And soft ones, yeah. It's one of those things where you do realize that those are some of the benefits of a reboot. Like I'm not yeah. gonna say that like, oh it's, it's reboot you go, but like if they were to do so, that would be a nice benefit is that they could just have a blanket Every single thing is once per turn and it is implied. And so it is no longer like a thing you have to write in. I got a crazy question for you. Uh Uh-oh. If you, let's say, let's say you had to reboot Yu-Gi-Oh! Like, you know, you don't get to say yay or nay, right? Okay. You have to reboot it. it. How would you start? You have to present this to gamers tomorrow. Really loaded question to ask me on the spot in the middle of the podcast. Okay, hey man, you know if you got hired by Konami, you did. That's I mean, how fast. You okay, make so here's the yeah, here's the um, I think my like highlight points would be, I don't think it would actually need to be like vastly different. I'm not like looking to really add in like huge new rule changes. I think I'm more so focused on just card legibility. Like, just stuff on the frame, right? Mm-hmm. I want, like, the art box to be larger. I think that stars should be, like, how Rush Duel does them, where it's, like, it's a star with the number eight. So, that they, that's, like, eight stars. So, you would slap Kazuka Takahashi in the face. That is not what I said. <laughs> no, but, you know, that, that would be, like, that would be the type of thing that I would... I want, like, legibility of, like, a bolder font. I honestly, hot take, would go to standard card size. Wow. Which... Just to get more space in the things. Just trying to put all these sleeve-making companies out of business. They're not going out of business. That's the size that every other point. That's true. They'll they'll adjust. Yeah, I think, like, legibility would be my big thing. I think um, balance would be probably... I know, like, balance is a a huge word to say. I have started to notice that... Well, it's a bit of a tangent, so... That's fair. Should I go on it? It's like not too much of a tangent. I'll go be, for I'll it. Go to for be it. Quick. Shoot, shoot. We got I'll time. To be it's a podcast. Yeah, okay. So my tangent is that l- there are so many things in Yu-Gi-Oh that I notice as I like grind Master Duel and all these things where you play against all these different archetypes and I'm starting to realize some archetypes like, you know, are made weaker on purpose and like stronger on purpose. Mm-hmm. So at least that's the feeling that I get. So many cards can be balanced with just little tiny shifts in like just how much is free versus how much is kind of worked for or comes with a cost 
So something that I've been really liking is these cards that like will search something to your hand, but then you have to put something on the bottom of your deck. Right. There's a lot of so like Springin's Kit like comes that. to mind, and there's like a few others like that. Um, like there's that Melfi search card that because there's their spell, and I'm starting to think that that can actually be a really good way of you know balancing stuff. Anytime yeah. that you're getting a search, it should not get to be a plus one. It should always get to be like a zero. And then another thing too was um, I think that there could be like more searching and in phase. So I hate Bissil to death, but at least with Magnamoot, he does search in the in phase. And I think that that sort of a thing can actually really help. Wow, but y'all said Odd Eyes was terrible because it, it pioneered searching in the end phase. Well, see, that's, yeah, that's the thing I thought of Odd Eyes where, like, I think we need more cards. I remember the first one I remember was, like, Genex Neutron was, like... Oh, we don't talk about that. Way back in the day. I think, like, stuff like that where it's not that you're making the cards, like, garbage or, you know, caveman vanilla things, but just that, like... If your search comes in the end phase, that means you have to end your turn. Actually, I'm mad. You just reminded me of something. Guys, can I tell you about the time Paul forced me to build a Genex deck or, or GenX or whatever you want to call them on Master Duel? Oh, for he, a bit. And he forced me to play him and win. It was for a bit for a video, that's all. That took way more gems and effort than I ever wanted to put in. And... Listen. He, he triggered this memory because I know exactly how Genex Neutron works, and I shouldn't because I've never yeah. wanted to play the deck. Can I say poor Genex needs like something new? No, they don't. Yes, they do. They need they need to stay they, in anything. the dust. Yeah, but so like there's a few other examples, but I'll cut it short there and just say that I do think like you can you'd be surprised by just slowing things down a little and like cutting down on like the free advantage stuff. You can actually like I think tame a lot more cards and like engines and you know. And, of course, adding restrictions. Like, just summon lock-ins. You only summon fiends for the rest of the turn. That some archetypes do it, and some just don't. So. Nah, I do have a part two, but it, and it's the final part of the question. Okay. What's Are you going to start from uh, Legend of Blue Eyes? No. Like, what? if I did a reboot? No. I think I would, like, start maybe thematically from Legend of Blue Eyes, but it would... It would, like, just be that it would include, like, new Blue Eyes cards. Like, it would be, like, the new support stuff would still be, like, in there. Oh, okay. It, basically, any monster that's been, like, retrained any vanilla or whatever, it would be probably the retrained forms. Like, I want to start at a strong power level. I just think that my gripes tend to be more around, like, syntax, accessibility, that kind of thing. Gotcha. What about you? Like, if you were to reboot Yu-Gi-Oh!, what would be your, like... I don't like being put on the spot. Oh, I, I didn't realize I'd have to answer. I was, I was, I was the one asking questions. Um, so yeah, if I had, if I were rebooting Yu-Gi-Oh, I would focus on being accessible to new players. That would be my number one goal with Yu-Gi-Oh. So I don't know. I I don't have all the specifics worked out because this question was only posed to me because I posed it to someone else. But no, I'm a uh, suck, huh? <laughs> I would focus on having uh, easy to read and simple cards, kind of like that whole magic thing. Like you know, when you, if you you read the card and that's what it does, that's how it works. I I want it to you be know, like kind of one very, line, two line effects. Mm-hmm, I want it to be very simple. You think I think you would do? Well, oh, sorry to cut you off. Did you? What, what 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 would I do? Well, I feel like you seem like you'd kind of like a, a very like some sort of role where you have to kind of build pure decks. I know I think, you're kind of um, big on like keeping decks fairly in archetype. I don't even know if I were rebooting Yu-Gi-Oh, if I would like if I would have the importance on archetypes at all. Oh, you you kind of may prefer that more like monsters are a little bit more just arbitrary like, a bit. I would cuz I like themes 
like in, in older Yu-Gi-Oh, we didn't have archetypes, we had themes. Just kind of related cards that you could you can put them together. They could they kind of work together, but they really don't. Right. I don't know if if I were rebooting Yu-Gi-Oh, I don't know if I'd just bring back full-on archetypes. Yeah. Like, yeah. I I love many archetypes in Yu-Gi-Oh. I do. Like I, I can think of, of quite a few just off the top of my head, Plunder Patrol, Spriggins, Heroes. I love them. But I don't think I'd do that again if I had uh-huh. a choice. Okay. That might get me killed in the comments. Yeah, I know like archetypes have done their they've done their part in I think making the game more so I would say that it's actually probably the one part of Yu-Gi-Oh that I think helps with its accessibility is that you can just point someone in the direction of an archetype. Mm-hmm. Now, there are holes I can poke into that, but I will say that it's nice to be able to say, okay, what do you like? Like, what are things that you like? You like pirates? Okay, there's like a pirate theme thing. Do you like, you know, Star Wars, whatever? Do you like dragon waifu girls? There's dragon mates. Like, you know, you can like kind of point people to... I probably wouldn't to, bring all the waifus over. I'm sorry. You can like point people kind of to different stuff. And that's always been nice. People can just relate to like fire fists or whatever. And so I think that's always helpful. Probably the one little gripe that, or like small issue that I guess can come of it is because archetypes have gotten so unique and like all that, it can sometimes mean that like picking an archetype means learning its gimmick instead of necessarily learning Yu-Gi-Oh, if that makes sense. It very much makes and sense. And that, that applies to more to some archetypes than others. Like some archetypes kind of just play the Yu-Gi-Oh as the Yu-Gi-Oh does, but others, their gimmick is so self-contained. Like Runic is such a specific little like concoction yeah. of things that really no other deck looks like it. And it's fun because it's unique, but it's also like very like no other deck is able to do this and mm-hmm. at all and like mechanically so you know i think uh well you Yu-Gi-Oh is kind of like a fighting game with all its archetypes every archetype's a different character Yu-Gi-Oh has kind of lost its Ryu and Ken yeah i can hear what you're saying it's, that. it's hard to point to a deck that's like yeah that's how you play Yu-Gi-Oh yeah which is why it's harder to teach people sometimes I know um, that's kind of an analogy I think of with Super Smash Bros. People always talk about this like Smash 4 and especially Smash Ultimate. As Smash introduced new characters, a lot of the newcomers, Sakurai and their team, you know, the developers, they go to great lengths to kind of preserve that character's just like pay homage to their games, mm-hmm. their physics, the items and weapons and attacks they use. And why is Samus so floaty? Well, because she's old. <laughs> wow. But. Like, that's kind of why, though, a lot of DLC characters, in terms of, like, game balance and stuff, can sort of feel like they're breaking the rules or not really playing Smash. They're playing, like, like Minecraft Steve. People say that a lot about him. But there's, like, other characters, too, where they're not... Like, they just have there's so many, like, little specific mechanics to them. Some mm-hmm. meter or some, like, other thing. Some resource they have to make use of. And it can sort of... I guess I compare Yu-Gi-Oh! to that in a way where, like, new archetypes are breaking more and more boundaries that are cool but in the process becoming like more and more self-contained and harder to like, you know, take those skills and translate them elsewhere for a newer person. At least yeah, I think if I'm going to, if I want, if I'm going to show someone how to play street fighter, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put on, hook them up with Ryu, mm-hmm. show them how to play neutral and how to punish and, you know, teching through all the basics you can learn with Ryu and you can show them more advanced stuff and then they can go on to choose whatever weird characters I want to play. Like that one guy, what's his name? Fei Long, guy with the long hands and stuff. Um, I digress. No, I, I feel, yeah. But I, I think Yu-Gi-Oh! needs 
It needs white bread. Yeah. And I think that there are some decks like it, but it's just that when you are facing decks that aren't, it feels so wild. So like a completely different game. I think the most the most wild deck that I can think of that isn't that you can play in Yu-Gi-Oh, but you're not really playing Yu-Gi-Oh, uh Valence. Yeah, Valence just turns it into something else too. <laughs> Valence is playing a completely different game. I mean, they can and it, the crazy part is they'll still do like no, comp like normal pendulum s combos, but the, but then they then they slam one of your monsters into the spell and trap zone, destroying your spell your yeah. like trap, and it's like, huh? Oh, then they summon their monster from the spell and trap zone. It's very, <laughs> it's a it's a weird deck. Oh, there was one other thing that actually you'd pointed out to me yesterday, like from comments. I I apologize. Well, you know, typically Alec is usually the one who like reads a lot of comments and just sort of. You know, we'll talk about like, oh, like you what guys people make feel me like. happy and depressed often. So, yeah, I'll, I'll let you have the stage because it was what. Oh, I don't remember what I said. Oh, OK. You were telling me about how, like, you feel like a lot of people in the comments are like a like these podcasts, like with the last episode. Like, what did you say? Oh, man. Yeah, I really don't think you understand where we where Paul is coming from when we talk about Yu-Gi-Oh!, I think a lot of times, you know, I, I am a casual Yu-Gi-Oh player. That is my stance. That's my position. That's where I'm coming from. Paul, though, Paul well, is actually kind of different. So there are people who they, they will believe that all of our opinions are strictly from a casual's point of view on Yu-Gi-Oh. No, those are... My opinions. I am the casual. The, yeah. The um, oftentimes, like we might sound casual leaning because one of us here is a casual, but um, typically when Paul is arguing for or against anything, it's actually from a a, a more like a third person. He, because Paul is not a, a well, casual like me. Like, well, I mean, okay. Let me. You're not. Don't even. Don't play. Let me explain myself. Okay. I'll, I'll try to. So my understanding from what you kind of said was just that there are a lot of comments. And I've seen a few of them where people will hear me like ranting about Yu-Gi-Oh saying like it's not accessible enough and it needs to be more accessible or like it feels too like overwhelming for like newcomers and stuff like that. I'll see people in the comments, especially when they're like in shorts, because I get it. You're getting like a bite sized bit of the video out of context. But people will say like, OK, you're just complaining or you're supposed to be like a filthy casual or if you hate this game so much, then stop playing or like. This would be easier if you would just read your cards or whatever. It's like, and, and all those things are good to direct at me. No, not even at you. They don't I mean, need to direct abuse at you. I mean, it's but a little abuse and so bad. The impression I'll sometimes get I, I is... Like that. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the impression that I'll sometimes get um, is just that people think I'm... Like, so for instance, I'll say things like... Um, I made a tweet the other day where I was like, it's interesting... Don't you mean a Z... You're right. I made a Zeet the other day. Um, yeah, but I was I was posting on Twitter for however long it's going to be called that the other day about like pendulums and link monsters and the effect that they've had in hyper casual spaces. And so I Zeet went something along the lines of, I find it interesting to see the effect that pendulums and links have had on Yu-Gi-Oh's image in casual spaces. They seem to be the reason that a lot of people cite as why they drifted away from the game. And then I quoted people as saying, like, you know, I quit Yu-Gi-Oh! when they made the monsters into spell cards or when they added those weird arrow things. And so that was my tweet. And there were some people who responded, and they were kind of, like, angry at me. They are like, 
well, like, I don't know why you're complaining about these links and pendulums so much. Like, if you, you they're, they're simple, it's just this, this, and the other. Or, like, well, you know, if you've done this and other, you would understand, like, whatever. And people, and I'll, I'll see comments like that. And I think what people don't always understand is, like, my tweet said nothing about my personal opinion on pendulum monsters or link monsters or whether I think they're too confusing or crazy or badly designed or well-designed or anything. I was only saying that it has been interesting to observe the effects that they've had on casual spaces, like hyper-casual spaces. I'm the casual space. No, not even just necessarily you. I'm, I'm talking like the hyper-casual. Like, when we go to these, like, anime conventions. Oh, them. Like, things like, you know, DreamCon or whatever, like, Anime Expo, where you meet, like, just these people who, like, I played you guys as a kid, and then, like, I kind of played it, and I stopped because of this. I find it interesting that while those mechanics are, like, cool and interesting and, like, different, they seem to be a, a reason that a lot of people cite for quitting the game. So when I'm tweeting that or zeding that or saying it on this podcast, I am not saying that. Or zeding it on this podcast. You know, zed always sounds like, like a weird sexual thing. Well, we're going to have to get used like to a, it. It sounds like you pronounce it like a zgeet or something. No, not a skeet. <laughs> but um, like, so when I make posts like that or when I talk about it like in that way, I guess my thing would be remember that I'm coming at it not from the perspective of, Oh my God, Yu-Gi-Oh is so complicated. I don't understand anything. I'm not reading these cards or how any of these mechanics work. I'm saying that I see how these could be difficult or overwhelming from the perspective of a newcomer. Or I can see why these mechanics could be alienating and push people away. I'm not saying they pushed me away. Pendulums didn't make me quit. Links didn't make me quit. I understand how they work. But I think people will miss, they'll kind of conflate me with like what I am saying but I'm usually arguing or representing different like ends of the spectrum, right? Does that Yo, make- Paul knows how to play all these cards and knows how to use all knows all these rulings and all these strategies. The pe- he's he's arguing or talking about other people, not himself. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's if like y'all a, could see this man play play uh, diamond rank in Macedonia oh, every day, day in and day out. Bang his head against the wall, sometimes I mean, literally. I'm not master rank yet, so I can't be that good. But, yeah, my thing is, I know how to play Yu-Gi-Oh. Like, trust me. I know how competitive Yu-Gi-Oh works. I know how rulings work. I know, like, I can get pretty nitty-gritty. And me, I learn a new ruling every you day. You know, like, I've gotten, I've, like, been through the regional circuit. I've been through the Y-Sys. So, I'm not, like, saying it as, like, this is so hard and, like, scary and I hate it. They should go back to this. I'm saying, you know... I can see where a person could have difficulties with this. I've played in three YCSs. And I think as it happens... Four. That's actually, that would actually make you like on the more competitive end if you think about it. I hope it. not. <laughs> well, some people haven't played a single YCS. Oh, maybe so. But yeah, so basically that's just something to keep in mind. I'm not trying to like ever insult a side, like say competitive sucks or whatever sucks. It's more like just, I see why this is fun for some people. I see why this is maybe not so fun for these people. And we're just presenting it as like something that we can explore from a lot of angles. That's and that actually leads me into what I want to ask you guys to do in the comments here today as you're watching this video. Guys, help me convince Paul to play meta so he can get to master in Macedor. Oh no, I am never. sick of him taking I these strange decks. I will not build and GR trying to force his way. Happening. Just build it, build tier and go. For context, I've been playing a lot of Dogmatica Ritual and uh, Master Rank or trying to get to Master Rank in Master Duel. 
Big mistake because like they, they send stuff from extra deck to graveyard and master and diamond and stuff is just filled to the brim with like branded and stuff. So you're literally just helping your opponent. But if a hundred people in these comments say you should just build tier so you can get to master, but the wins are so much more satisfying it. when you do it with a deck that's like handicapped. How many losses do you have to take to get there? I'm still finding out the answer to that. Okay, that's enough Yu Gi Oh. We've got other stories. That's true. There's other card games. There's other torches to be had uh but this is actually kind of a a fun one okay some card game stuff i've got a couple card game stories yeah so uh the pokemon tcg is uh returning to mcdonald's oh i had that story too okay so okay yeah yeah Um, tell me about it because i only saw the so we don't so it hasn't been confirmed in the u.s yet but the at least in europe they will have a it'll be a new happy meal promoting Promote, it's a new Happy Meal promotion featuring Pokemon trading cards. The set will include 15 cards, all of which originally came from the Scarlet and Violet base set released earlier this year. Six of the cards will be Hollow Foils, Sprigatito, Fuecoco, Quaxley, Sititan, Pikachu, and Cloth. Which one's Cloth? Is that the crab-looking thing? I think so, yeah. Yeah, it's a crab-looking thing. Happy Meals will also include a special match and battle toy like last year's set, although with an updated design. No U.S. release has been announced yet, but we can expect it to release on the same time, like, reasonably. That's really cool. I, um... I will say I wish that Yu-Gi-Oh cards could come back in McDonald's packs, honestly. I wonder why that hasn't happened. Yeah, Konami's done it. They did two different runs of Yu-Gi-Oh cards, too. Yeah, and I, like honestly, GX the GX one, one kind of, I, I kind of missed that. I don't know how I did as a yeah, kid. the GX one was like a better one. It actually had some neat cards. I don't know. For some reason, like, there's something about Cosmo Queen from the, and like Millennium yeah. Shield. That's true, first too. First pack. I mean, so it's cool that Pokemon's going to be Maybe like. Maybe that's the boomer in me. It is. That's okay. It's okay to be a boomer sometimes. You can quote me on that. Um. Yeah, I mean, it's cool that they're coming back into Happy Meals. Pokemon's kind of maintained, like, it's every other year or so. It kind of has, like, a Happy Meal thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, obviously, Pokemon's, like, it's pop culture. It's huge. It makes sense. Kids will love this. I was at the card shop earlier today, like I was saying, and um, there were some kids buying Pokemon cards in the card shop and, like, looking at the cards. And it just took me back because, like, they were so amazed at just what they were seeing. Like, they were yeah. like, ooh, that's, like, the, like, the blah, 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 like, the Red Gyarados and... Like, they were, like, asking the guy at the shop, like, just how much, like, the cards are worth. And and they were just, like, talking about things that they'd, like, seen, like, I guess heard at school or, like, seen online or whatever. And it's like, oh, no, but that one, they say, like, if you get this, it's whatever. And they were just so into it. It was, like, two or three, like, kids and I guess, like, their dad or maybe it was, like, someone's dad and some friends. no idea how Pokemon has managed to just keep, like, like bringing kids in and enamoring them with this card game. Like, what are they doing that the rest of these card games need to pick up on? I mean, I know Pokemon gets, like, obviously the huge edge of it's got the video games, which are so fundamentally good, however unfinished they might be. But, like, you know, but, like, Pokemon games, no one can deny they are, like, very good, playable, solid games. Like, and I think for kids especially, they do a really good job of that. And then they got, like, that anime and... You know that Pokemon anime. It just... It just... It's iconic. It goes. It doesn't stop. great marketing. I've been watching the new one, by the way, Pokemon Horizons. It hasn't been dubbed yet. I think it's going to be on, like, Netflix or something on TV here in a couple months. But, like, even this new one, they finally don't have Ash in it. But it's still, like... They make the Pokemon so cute. Like, it's... Ash will be in the second season. I'm calling it now. Like, so, you know, Fue Coco and Quaxley and um, Sprigatito are in it. And, like... They're all very cute. They all, like, kind of 
have their little personalities and makes you want to have one. And it's just, it's this type of thing where you can really see, like, and Pokemon, like, it, it treads that line really well between epic and cute, where, right. like, there's the cute little starters, but then there's, like, the epic cool things, like, you know, the red Gyarados and, like, the legendaries and, and then just, like, stuff that you... Like Snorlax is blocking the road and it's huge and it's always asleep and you was know was that in Horizons too? No, but oh, okay. you know, like just that sort of thing or like um although in Horizons like they're chasing like a, a black Rayquaza or something. Whoa, spoilers. It's like in the freaking promotional material, I think. Yeah, Never mind, spoiler warning. But um yeah, I don't know. Like Pokemon it just it does such a good job, I think, of keeping kids just invested and entertained and like into it. And um Oh, okay. Sorry to deter from this real quick. That reminds me of one like mini Yu-Gi-Oh thing. So at San Diego Comic-Con last weekend, okay. they had Time Wizard clocks. Oh, yeah. And um, little dual disc watches. And then also these Exodia plushes. Which I think that would be the first time Exodia's gotten a plush. And He is not cute. He's not. <laughs> and I don't really have any like story on it so much as just the fact that I thought that it was really cool to see that because... I've always been saying that like Yu-Gi-Oh needs to better market like its little mascotty things, like the cuter ones. And so seeing things like Time Wizard, like a Time Wizard alarm clock, feels like that's like the territory you kind of need to be in. I want a Rocket Warrior. That would be cool too, actually. Rocket Warrior bomb. Because they've they've started to do stuff with Karibo a little bit, but like a Karibo bomb. But like I thought they should do more scapegoats, like little sheep tokens. What you gonna do with it? Make, like, plushes of them. Oh, I guess so. That, I don't know that if they have any sense. official ones. They might have them from Japan. I wonder how big those things would be in real life. Because, like, how big is it? What is a scapegoat, really? I mean, if it's a real goat, it's kind of, it would be huge, right? I think, like, from the show, they seem like they're about as big as this pot. Maybe a little bigger, smaller. Like, a little goat. But back to Pokemon TCG. You're okay. going to be buying some of these? Oh, man. See, I, I just haven't bought a Happy Meal since uh, I was um, Oh, yeah, child. you have to buy a Happy Meal, don't you? Yeah, so I probably, you know, I probably won't. But I know that won't stop a lot of the rest of you adults, so have at it. I think they uh, sold out the last time I remember them having these. I wouldn't be surprised. It was like 2020, I maybe, 2021. They were selling out in a Cardi being Offset meal. Oh, my God. I hope they don't try and, like, run it alongside some, like, celebrity promo. That would be... That'd be pretty funny if like that'd be disturbing. Like oh, I wouldn't be surprised if they had, like a post Malone meal or whatever. A post, you know, like, Ma- post Malone and Pikachu meal or Ed Sheeran because he did the song for that's true. Straw and Violet, maybe. He's in the game. That oh, was is? controversial. Oh yeah, yeah, he is. Oh, you never finished the game. Yeah, I didn't finish it. Yeah, so trash. Wow, thanks. Um, so yeah, that's that's a cool thing. I will try to get my hands on maybe a Happy Meal and relive a bit of childhood. Oh, and that's a great way, a great time to remind people. Don't scalp these. Yeah, please. let's not. Let's try not like, do that. Let's let the kids get that. their freaking Pokemon cards. But, you know, some people might say some other adult will do it, so why not me? Terrible mentality to have. Hey, Let the kids yeah, have their cards. That's the mentality. Um, okay, well, my story, um, in the realm of accessibility, Disney Lorcana co-designer aims to make TCG more accessible and less, quote, male-dominated. How? How, Sway? Yeah, so, um, this woke propaganda comes to us from, no. Um, Ravensburger and Disney have a unique opportunity through the TCG Disney Larcana to introduce a trading card game to a wide variety of individuals who normally would never play that type of game. It's going to be soft launching in August through local game stores. Blah, 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 blah. Ryan, co-designer Ryan Miller spoke to Dot Esports about the main goals that went into creating the Disney Larcana TCG. 
and that competing directly with the big three was never an intention. The goal wasn't to reinvent the wheel, according to Miller, but instead to create a trading card game for everyone. So he says, our main goals were accessibility, fun, strategic, and inclusive as well. Um, we feel like trading card games have long been male-dominated, yeah. and we would like to change that. So, yeah. Um, How are they going to change it? Well, I, I'm. that's a great question. I mean, they're we'll printing cards. That, yeah. that That's not changing anything. I mean. I think that it's really, it speaks more to the characters that they have at their disposal for this. Because for a change, we're going to get to have, you know, a lot of Disney princesses. So, like, you're not having to, like, make up a character or something that you market to the little girls. But rather, like, there are characters that are popular with, like, boys and girls that you can already, like, pull from, you know? Oh, uh, okay. Like, what do you think? Do you feel like That'll this be, is a good goal? I'm just thinking how hilarious that would be in, like, the early 2000s. Back when, uh, you know, things were still heavily gendered and whatnot. Oh, yeah. Like, can you, I, I can I can hardly imagine, you know, young boy runs home, at, at least that's what they identified as at the time, and it's like, I got my Cinderella deck, Dad, my Cinderella deck. Yeah, Dad was angry. Like, How dare you like that? Back in the day, like, Things were so gendered. I know marketing was split, split down, the, down middle, the middle, right? You had marketing for boys, marketing for girls, and never never the two show. Yeah. Now, but I guess Lorcana is a little different because unlike every card game that came before it, it will be, I guess, it's not really cross-marketing, but... Like, it's just included. Just- yeah, just... Everyone, everything everyone, everyone can be here. Everyone can be here. Everyone can play, which is cool. Because I mean, there's a lot. I'm pretty sure there's lots of like young boys who love the Disney princesses just as much, or if not as, or maybe more than like girls did. But you know, at the time, you know, yeah, it would have been a bad look. I think that accessibility thing is very good. So he goes on to say here, tapping into a franchise like Disney provided Lorcana devs with an abundance of characters. Um, the quote is, if princesses are what a player is into, they can just put their princesses in a deck and be fine, according to Miller, when playing in a casual environment. The same can also be said of villains and heroes, along with side characters that have never been in the spotlight. So, um, yeah, I thought that, that was just kind of a nice thing. He also kind of goes on to talk about um, strategy and skill. He says that those weren't really a focus during the design process. Oh, that's interesting. So, um, according to Miller, complexity gets a, quote, bad rap. And is needed for any game you want to be around long term. So they seem like they're kind of taking less of a like, we want deep, complex mechanics and more of a, we want everybody to be able to just like kind of play this and enjoy themselves. Right. And I think that at least on paper, obviously we'll see like how that all plays out. But that sounds good. Like it does. It sounds well intentioned. I wonder how successful it'll be. I think. If if they're if they're successful, we'll see it through the kids that play. I think as far as adults that play, it'll probably be the same adults we're used to saying. Yeah, M- maybe that could I could be completely wrong about that, but you know we'll see like by like like what like how many and like you know if kids if it's like an inclusive group of kids and they did a good job then. Yeah, I think um, my only other thought on it, I guess, is just like. You know, will it be something that, like, will pull off a few, like, Magic or Pokemon people? I'm sure a few will at least be trying it out. I wonder if it will actually convert anybody. 
I know, I mean, there's going to be a lot of people that try it out, mm-hmm. out the gate. Now, whether or not they stick with it, that'll be almost entirely decided by what type of, um, like, tournament circuit and whatnot does Lorcana yeah. provide. I, I really enjoy, because we have a Pokemon local scene in our shop, I enjoy how, seemingly how much there is to that. These, like, Pokemon weeklies, I mean, they have their little chart where they their track how many, or whatever, whatever is they do. I don't, I don't understand how it works, but it seems to be a lot of activities that keeps these kids engaged while they play Pokemon. If Lorcana is even half that, I think it'll be very successful, at least with kids. Yeah, and just one last thing, I guess, on the male-dominated space thing. He's right. I mean, like, card games are definitely a male-dominated space, and even, you know, to this day, like, I think... I think Disney Larkana is well positioned to change that because it's new. I know with a lot of things like Yu-Gi-Oh and Magic, we always talk about, like, I'll see, you know, conversations online and stuff about, like, how we need more inclusivity in Yu-Gi-Oh and that, like, there are a lot of people who still are very, like, bigoted around, like, girls don't belong in this game or, like, she must not know how to play. She's just, like, looking for attention. Oh, you know, old tropes that you've heard for years. I mean, at the but, back in the day, Yu-Gi-Oh as a brand as a brand was marketed towards boys and not girls as much. And so it's tricky now. Sorry, go ahead. So it will be it's so it kind of is like of course there are less girls in this space and that's a shame. Yeah, I mean I yeah. Like I think that Disney is in a good position to from the ground up like from the ground going forward to like change that with Yu-Gi-Oh! It seems like it's tougher because like, it's like you said, like it's so fundamentally kind of male focused that even if you try to take steps now, I guess the game is so mature and a lot of the like foundation has been set. Mm -hmm. So it's still for a lot of these players. I'm not saying I'm not defending them, but I think for a lot of players, they'll just never be able to like wrap their brains around the idea that like a girl can like, compete in Yu-Gi-Oh and like be good at it even though we've literally like watched you know girls win YCS events and nationals and things but yeah, like it's true but it's still I think that still to a lot of these people it's like I guess understandably it's just going against something that they've known for so long so and, hopefully uh, this can change and that. Disney has less of that issue the, the Disney brand is so wide and encompassing Disney has marketed to boys and girls a little differently but Fairly consistently for decades. Yeah. So Disney's, you know, they're no stranger to it. The characters, I think, already do a lot of the work for them. It's probably the one thing that's maybe can come the closest to unseating Pokemon in a sense of just like there's so much that kids can resonate with. My question is this. How long will Arcana run until they start dipping into the properties that Disney owns that aren't just considered oh, Disney the classics. Collab, yeah, when Star collab. Wars, oh, when's God. Marvel. I'd prefer they don't. But I, I'd hope yeah, that it'll they be, don't, but it's probably come, inevitable. You know, this is gonna happen. <laughs> it's gonna happen. So they own too much. Um, any other? Yeah. So um, I want to talk a little bit about Digimon. Okay. Because uh, not too long ago we got our last uh, Digimon set BT thirteen. Up. Oh, what's the name of that set? Versus Royal Knights, so the theme is the Royal Knights of the Digital World. It's these um these knights that serve the king of the digital world, or uh, like Yggdrasil, or King Drazel. And typically in the Digimon media franchise, the Royal Knights show up to like purge the earth of all like living creatures. That that's 
harsh, but I mean, that's kind of what they do. Mm-hmm. But that's not what I want to talk about. What I want to talk about is what they included that no one expected from this set. The Ace Digimon. Uh, this is a new mechanic that is being introduced in the Digimon card game. We weren't supposed to get it until we got our n- next round of starter decks and then further expanded upon in BT-14. But someone was like, hey, you know what could spice up this metagame? Let's introduce these Ace Monsters a set early. Oh, that's what they're called, actually. Yeah, they're called Ace, Ace Monsters. Ace Monsters. Or Ace Digimon? Ace Digimon, Ace Monsters. Dig- I'm Digimon sorry, Yu-Gi-Oh! Monsters. Or something, you know, they're they're you all monsters. Just- but so what Aces are, they are hand traps, essentially. Oh, interesting. They give you something to do during your opponent's turn, so you don't just have to sit there and take whatever they're dishing out. So Digimon has not had, like, kind of a way to interact, really, with your opponent in their not, turn. Not really, unless your cards say so. Because like, if you have a card on board, sometimes they'll have effects that activate when your opponent attacks or when they get deleted or something. Right. But that's still very it's much... kind of more, re- like, just undestruction type of thing. Yeah, you have the, you're taking damage and now something's happening. You really can't stop your opponent from reaching whatever goal. As long as they allot enough memory... You can't stop them unless your security like says no to them, and you can't plan for that. Well, now you can with Ace Monsters. We're getting two. We're getting a a black a War Greymon card. This isn't Black War Greymon. If you're a fan of the uh, second Digimon series, it's a uh, it's a black card War Greymon, and we're getting a purple Metal Gururumon. and they both have unique effects that you can digivolve into them for free during your opponent's turn as long as you have an appropriate type of Digimon on board. So these are both mega-level Digimon, so you have to have an ultimate-level Digimon on board. So that's, like, the requirement and a bit of a telegraph to your opponent that you might do it. But they have turn-altering effects. Metal Gururumon can actually gain memory when it digivolves. And if you recall from the rules of Digimon, if you gain memory during your opponent's turn, you're taking it away from them. Mm-hmm. which means you can actually end your opponent's turn early and mm. stop them from making a play that might have killed you. The New War Greymon, actually, it's a blocker and then some. I don't actually recall all of its effect. But mm. the main thing is you can just you can plop out a huge blocker just on your opponent's turn when they're not expecting it, and you can stave off lethal damage. And these Digimon, they don't go away. These aren't like hand traps in Yu-Gi-Oh where you pitch them to the grave. They're on the board now. That on, So on your turn, you can actually use the things. Mm-hmm. So this is sort of like a fundamental mm-hmm. sort of cha- introduction to... They change the they change some of the rules of like how we resolve things in the game. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's, they introduce a counter step Presumably that means there will be more effects like this. And we know from BT-14 there are more ace cards on the way. But now, see, it used to work in Digimon is if I'm I'm your opponent, I declare an attack. All my effects that activate when I attack would activate and resolve. And then all your effects that would activate when I attack resolve. Then you would declare who you're blocking with if you want to block at all. Now before you have to um, declare a block, you can instead... Blast Digivolve with your Ace Digimon. It's a free Digivolution, and now you get to resolve effects during your opponent's turn and presumably stop whatever they got going on. So how are players receiving this? Has it been like, well, I don't... 
to, to be clear, I don't keep up at all, like really with the Digimon metagame. So if you're like me, that might have kind of gone over your head, but I do think I have the gist. How do players feel about it? Because that, that feels like that's like a fundamentally quite big thing. It's huge. Right now, I th- it's very, li- the release is limited. It's just two cards, and you can only play them in purple decks, black decks, or Greymon decks, or Garurumon decks. So they, so they're not, not everywhere. But right, but it's it has been fairly positive. Digimon players like the idea of actually having something to do during their opponent's turn. There are some things that kind of need to be worked out a bit. People have found that these Ace Digimon have very low play costs for their levels, and there have been times people have been able to just abuse that these are cheaper Digimon. Go, foregoing the fact that these are hand traps you can use during your opponent's uh, turn. So there might be some unintended kind of balance Little, issue. Yeah, some like exploitations that can happen. But I don't think we're going to see the full like ramifications of that until BT14 when we get all the other ones. Because there's going because these are just mega level Digimon, which are level sixes. There's also ultimate level ones, which are level five, and they're even cheaper and easier to play. There's all kind of things that can. Oh come yeah, up. to contextualize, BT14 is like like the name of a set. Yeah, not the name of it, but like it's, it's like the fourteenth Digimon, the fourteenth uh, set. set, because they all have names, and honestly, it's hard to keep up with all of them. Yeah, I noticed that in Digimon, everybody they call them like just by the number. I can't wait for BT13. I'm just like, what? <laughs> Because like it's funny, I guess, you know, in most card games, people just call the set by, like, what it's called. Or there'll be, like, a sort of shorthand name for Not it. in Bandai sets. But, yeah, like, you know, Duelist Nexus, like, or Dune. But, yeah, it's, like, it'd be weird calling, like, will Digimon be able to do that past, like, 20? Because I feel like after 20, does, you know. No, we're going to say Yeah, it's, it's BT37, no, guys. We're, like, we're, you know. We're going to do it. Because, like, in Yu-Gi-Oh, imagine if we were calling, like, Duelist Nexus by its set number. I don't even know what that would be, like. BT seventy four. I think Yu Gi Oh players would do it if we started with it. Yeah, you got to start. Had we been doing it. it the whole time, I think we would. It is faster to say just like BT fourteen. That's true. Than like uh, you know Digimon card game cross encounter. Yeah. Well, cross encounter though. That's true. It actually is. That's actually kind of. Anyway, back to the topic <laughs> of hand traps. No, I mean that's but interesting. Yeah, it, I brought it up because I was want. For anyone who tried the Digimon card game and didn't couldn't get into it purely off of the idea that they didn't like that they couldn't interact with their opponent during you know their opponent's turn, that is now changing. Yeah, that's cool. It always sounds crazy just that like you guys had like these hand traps that have been such a big point of debate. Seeing another card game sort of introduce them, I do like that it sort of sounds like these are less like anti like just. This just says you can't do this. It's kind of more like responding with an action mm-hmm. sort of thing. So that's my understanding. Yeah, they don't just say no, though. Uh, you can if you see if your opponent attacks, you can you can end up like bouncing an entire Digimon stack off their board before they can use it. Yeah. That can be kind of rude, but you know it is what it is. It kind of feels, I guess, to me, if I had to make a Yu-Gi-Oh comparison, a little bit closer to. Like monsters like Dogmatica Flirtily that you can kind of just like yeah. quick effect summon and then like negate something, or even maybe like sort of like a Gores type of Gores oh, type of card. I don't know. I might be off the mark there. No, those are actually really good examples of what these monsters are. These aren't Ash Blossoms. It's yeah. more like those. Okay. Um. So here's like a kind of quick one. Um. 2005 called. 
And it's asking if you want another Neopets trading card game. No, I don't. I, I don't. Well, this happens, I do. Okay. No, um, Neopets is kicking off its new era by returning to an old one. The company's newly independent leadership has announced the creation of a trading card game called Neopets Battle Dome, harkening back to the original Neopets trading card game from the early 2000s. Um, yeah, according to this writer, they say, I've never played that one myself, but I bet there are a lot of 20 and 30-somethings out there who experience a kind of full-body time travel whenever somebody reminds them of it. So unlike the original Neopets I'm TCG, experiencing something. which was made by Wizards of the Coast, the new game is being made by Upper Deck. Um, oh, we know that company. That's the same company taking rival game maker Ravensburger to court over the upcoming Larkana game. But anyway, um, it's going to be set to hit in 2024, just in time for Neopets' 25th anniversary. It's a two-player TCG featuring a unique dice combat system. So I don't know what that what means. Is that? Oh god! Um, innovative deck building strategies and over twenty neopets to collect. Um, <laughs> Only twenty? Well, I mean, for now, maybe I don't know. But if the name rings a bell, it's because the battle dome was where you'd send your neopets to fight and die in your name in the browser game. There's no way they wrote that in the article. That's what they wrote in the article. It's from PC oh, okay. Gamer. All right. <laughs> yeah, the game will feature over 250 unique pieces of custom art from a bunch of different artists. And it really said a bunch of different artists. Yeah, it feels so like unjournalistic. It, it just sounded like you were summarizing it. Um, from yeah, that's something I would say. Oh, a bunch of different artists, um, from a bunch of different artists, and you can get a look at at it if you happen to be attending this August's Gen Con. That's the one in uh, Indianapolis. Yeah, that's uh, not this weekend, but next weekend. Got it. So yeah, Neopets trading card game. You playing? No, under no circumstances. I didn't like Neo Neopets at the time, and so I don't like them today. So that's interesting that you say that. I did not know anything really about Neopets other than, like, I knew it was big. I knew a lot of people liked it. I did not really engage with it any myself. Obviously, nothing against people who did. Alex did. Oh, Alex liked it? So I couldn't like it. Oh, okay. But you guys like, like, most of the same things. Well, and that's because you've only known us as adults. As kids, as kids Alex okay. and I had to always like opposite things. Well, I'll say this about Neopets. Um, it is one of those weird things, not like weird as in like if you like it, you're weird, but more like it's one of those strange things that just has kind of had like its pop culture like little like micro niche kind of cult classic thing that just has persisted. Like there are still people to this day that just really strongly reminisce about Neopets. But there's parts about like the early 2000s that people don't seem to so actively like reminisce about. So it's weird because it's withstood that test of time without seemingly getting, like, a lot of new media that I am aware of. I know someone oh, in the comments yeah. are going to tell me, like, what, you missed the Neopets movie last year? And I'm just going to be like, I don't know. I don't know. Like, there there are properties that I, do, I think endured. I actually don't count Neopets as one of them. I didn't. Oh, okay. I hadn't thought about Neopets in years until you just now. But if you didn't like it, name. then of course you haven't. I mean, there's things I didn't like, that, I, but I know it still exists because their, like, communities are still so loud. I gotcha. I don't know. I, I feel like maybe I've just been watching too much Billiam because like he, he did like oh he'll Neopets cover everything. Video. He'll he'll, he'll cover everything. Well, to pivot then, what do you think of the, the sound of like a dice based combat system? I'm horrified. I'm scared. Horrified, but why? Because more accessories, like mandatory accessories in games, guys. I'm still trying to like get over the core system in Battle Spirits. I know I knew about it, but there's something about manipulating those tiny little stones while you're playing your card game. I just did not enjoy it. Well, I think that you could also just use, like, 
a 20d die or how, something there's something like alternative or like there's like token type of cards you can use but they gave me the stones so i used them and i did not enjoy the experience i will say anytime a card game uses a resource system like that i always think like this is just be better off as a digital like, it's novel thing. it's cool it's novel and cool until i have to do it well speaking less from the logistics problem and more from like just what it strictly brings to the strategy and gameplay you think there could be something interesting there I mean, it depends on, um, like, how we're going to do it. I mean, com dice combat systems exist in many board games, especially in a tabletop, like, community. Right. So like that's an established thing, like, dice-based combat. And in some ways, that actually might be very accessible for people coming from a tabletop space. Space, Because, yeah, for them, they're used to that. That's how they, that's how they do battle with their um, armies. and Right. I think you have the right words. I yeah. Think. Guys, I don't play tabletop. Yeah, I mean, Larry's uh, hopefully been I to never play, do. Like, Warhammer lately, so he'll like, be after you soon. Like he can try. Yeah, I mean, I think like the idea of, of the dice based combat sounds fun because like, you know, monsters maybe having like attack value, but then like you roll the dice, like kind of get a bonus amount of attack or change or like get a different effect depending on what you roll. That sounds super fun to me. I think it kind of has like a bit of a D and D vibe. Um, I've only dabbled a little in D and D, so I don't know for sure. But like, that sounds like kind of rolling for your stats. And the only dice battle I want is dungeon dice monsters. True, they should do that. But yeah, so Neopets, it's coming out. You know, give it a shot. I, it's not something I I can say that I'm like invested enough to really try the game out. But I will not complain about people like this really niche kind of community getting something like this. Mm -hmm. Maybe it makes me worry for like. Will they make it past, you know, like a year or two? Who but, knows? In this but case. I am wishing them good luck. Um, it seems like something that at least is more suited to a card game than like Star Wars is. I was thinking the same thing. I was so, like, okay, at least it's not the Star Wars card game. So, yeah, sorry if that sounds unfair to the Star Wars fans. I really just don't think it needs a TCG. But, hey, I'm, I'm willing to be surprised. Maybe people will like it. Um, so, yeah, the Neopets, it's coming out next year. For the Neopets fans, hope you're happy. What you got? So, uh, I have MTG's Commander Masters set charges a King's Ransom for a mixed bag. Yeah, wow, guys, what a salacious... This is a Magic the Gathering uh, segment. You can tell the person who wrote this headline, like, they're, they're having a little fun. A little yeah. Alright, what's the Magic controversy? So, Magic the you Gathering... You know, we made it like a couple of weeks without well, like a Magic... Too late. Okay. Magic the Gathering revealed more information about the trading card game's annual reprint set for 2023, Commander Masters. It actually comes out very soon. Okay. Uh, this release will focus on the popular kitchen table format by stuffing boosters full of ostensibly needed reprints alongside powerful tools and iconic legendary creatures to pilot the 100-card decks. We're talking about Commander. If you weren't, you weren't sure, we're yeah, talking so about mumbo-jumbo, but I get the gist. Except fans and players are already beginning to grumble over what publisher Wizards of the Coast is promising to, to deliver at a price point that many find restrictively expensive. Okay, so what, is the, what does that mean? A box of 24 draft booster packs is currently being sold on Amazon for roughly $350. That's, what? That's at the time of, of uh, this article's posting, which I'm not sure what it is. A few days ago? Or? Who knows? Uh, while the quartet of collector boosters, which contain all variant art treatments and foil cards, will run someone about 230. Wait, when was this posted? Like, uh, it should be at the top. Maybe? July 12th. Okay, so, so it's been like it's been, a few it's weeks. been like a couple weeks. Maybe the prices have. 
But I guess like if it was Commander Masters, I can check right now if you it's want. It's not even out right now. It is yeah. not out yet. So that might be like pre pre release. I will go ahead and have a look at what Commander Masters cracks. Well, real quick, three hundred and forty five dollars. Okay, so it is okay. Well, woo. All right. So, anyways, continuing with no the lies were told here. All right. Um, compare that to la- to the latest mainline card set, March of the Machines. A draft booster back f- box from a set that's mere months old costs just above a hundred dollars, and the cl- and the collector's booster. Just south of two hundred. Okay, so the the prices on the sealed product is very high. Yes. Are the cards that you pull in it worth a lot? That is the number one question. So, like, how does that? It's look? no secret. Commander Masters has many great reprints. I could go into them, but I won't because that would make it sound like I actually know what I'm talking about. I don't. I just know that there okay. are many great reprints in the set. Right. However. There is a lot of contention in whether or not that actually justifies this price point. Okay. Because, you know, in the Yu-Gi-Oh card game, all cards are made equal. You know, that's yeah, the okay. uh, that's, that's how it works here. No cards better than another yada, yada, yada. No, Konami believes, yes. But see, in Yu-Gi-Oh, we have an MSRP that all things yeah, have to okay. be sold for. That's something that I just realized. Like, that you and, so, yeah, Alec and Larry were telling me the other day, Magic packs don't have an MSRP. No. Which is so, like weird. I don't know how that works. It essentially it means that Wizards of the Coast does not force vendors to actually honor any type of a price point when they sell their products. The seller can choose whatever price they want. So that's kind of how you end up with this like card shops and other places mm-hmm. selling things for these like kind of exorbitant prices. Hmm, so what? So it's funny when we have reprint sets, they're priced the same as the other sets. But when Magic when, has them, when they have reprint sets, the price of the set is literally determined by what cards are being reprinted and what the perceived value of those reprints are. That's frightening. That that is sorry to yawn. That's really, no, that actually is really frightening though. I mean, I guess just because, like, hey, that can mean card shops can kind of exploit you. It sucks if you're trying to support your local card shop and they're, like, charging a bunch of money. But also, like, online sellers, you know they'll, they have no shame. You're, you're going to get price gouged to, to hell and back. Now, I can see how it's a it's a win for card shops, right? I mean. Your margins will be. You don't get to, you don't get to lose out on the advantage you might, someone might have selling online, you know. I have to honor MSRP, but these boxes are going for so much more online. I wish I could sell for that amount. Mm-hmm. So you can always get the market price, but then it leaves your community at the mercy of the market. And the market is not always kind, especially in the trading card game space. You're going to get burned for it. Well, um, I can say this. I don't play magic. Thank God. No, but um, <laughs> no, I'm, that really sucks. I've just I know we've talked about like a lot of like Lord of the Rings thing with that. Uh Magic seems expensive. Yeah. Like I don't I, I'm not saying that as like a mark against the quality of the game. I'm saying that like I said earlier in the podcast, I'm saying that it's it seems to be a game that is a little demanding, like if you want to just buy things. Like packs or singles, I assume. So, I think that Wizards needs to consider doing MSRP. Like, 
I know there's some very obvious reason why I'm sure they can't. Like, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I'm some market expert who understands how card pricing and retailing and production. Oh, all you're that the works. marketing master. You know, I really don't know. But what I will say is that not having an MSRP just seems like it will never work out for the better because what shop or what seller is ever going to price like any lower than they absolutely have to. And maybe a better way or worse way of putting it is ever, like you're, the sellers are going to draw the line in front of themselves. Like you can, there's so many hostage situations where like, well, your local car shop just sells it for like somebody was telling me about like how some st- structure decks, I guess is what they're like commander, like some pre-cons? commander, like pre-constructed decks can be like 80 bucks just because like, that's kind of what a, a shop will charge for it because it's the more in demand one. And so they just put it at 80 and it's like, man, that really, and they release in sets. So there can be in one set of pre-cons that w- they'll be they'll have different prices on them because of what's in them and how, how yeah. good they are. Well, I hope they can change that. I think that they should. Good luck to you, Magic players. I want some more context, like always, with these Magic stories. I'm so ill-informed that we I are it. almost willfully ignorant. Yeah, like Larry kind of like follows Magic the most. I only know like the little bits and pieces that I've seen in press releases. So, like, if somebody can shed some light on maybe that MSRP thing, is there an argument for why it's actually like a good thing? Because I would like to hear it. Um, it just sounds un. Like, it just sounds like it's not a great thing. Right. But if there's, like, something that I'm, like, missing, please, like, educate me. I'd like to know, because that just sounds, un- like, $350. Yeah, that's a lot for a box, Like, yo. just Yu-Gi-Oh! could lot. never, like, not realistically. Like, Konami's MSRP system has kept things. People can complain about, like, pull rates or whatever, but, like, it has kept things in reasonable check in terms of just, like... Yeah. The buying experience for sealed product is at least consistent in that way. So, mm-hmm. um, okay. Uh, I've got, well, I was going to kind of leave this one out because I don't really, it's not that interesting, but I heard about it. So did you hear about Pokemon sleep? I meant to include this with the other Pokemon story. It's like Pokemon go, but you're not going. It's like this, like sleeping game. It's supposed to improve your sleep. Um, by tracking it. It launched last week. It's free with, like, in-app purchases, but it uses your phone's accelerometer to detect your movements while asleep. Players will have to put their phone on their bed or pillow so it can pick up these movements. While sleeping, you'll catch different Pokemon. The more you sleep, the higher your sleep score, and a high score means more Pokemon can be caught. Um, It also records audio for the night, which sounds like a little creepy, so it can pick up... um, Noise like if you're snoring or whatever. Garrett, you sleep talk. Now, uh, some players even say that the app recorded them farting. <laughs> That's like part of the story. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I saw this kind of an interesting thing. So, like a sleep tracking game. You know what? The first thing I thought was uh, that's actually kind of dangerous. How do you mean? So, you know, you're not actually supposed to sleep with your phone. Yeah. Your phone, sh- your phone should not be on your pillow as you sleep. Well, it says um, who? Like, what's the... That's a general, like, safety thing, like fire hazard and whatnot. Because, like, okay. you're really nice was to, like, leave your phone on charge overnight. 
But I imagine if you're playing this game, you, that means you're going to have your phone on charge overnight on your pillow. So if yeah. there were to be some type of electrical situation or a Samsung Note 8, was that the 8? 7, I seven think. Note 7 situation? Like, now you're in mortal peril. <laughs> well, I mean, I ain't going to lie. My phone's usually on my bed when I'm asleep. But I'll say this. The creepier thing about it to me is just, like, it's, like, listening. Something about that feels kind of weird. Like, the I mean, listening is weird. I'm more but... worried about the fire. Potentially think, fire. So here's what I actually think, though. This could have worked better as, like, a um, watch game. Like, you know how, you like, what, wear the watch when you sleep? Cause, yeah, because some people wear smart watches to sleep, cause, like, for sleep tracking, and they do a really good job of it. I feel when like do that you charge be, it? Some people just manage. Like, that's mm. not to, like, get into too much of, like, a smart watch, you know, kind of deterrent thing, but, like, uh, good battery life with a smart watch, I think, is important, because, like, it's, I think the most important thing is, like, fast charging. Because, right. like, if you're supposed to wear this to sleep, then I guess you have to, like, charge it when you're, like, in the shower or. Like maybe when you're eating meals or something like that. So the charging would need to be pretty quick to keep you topped up. But as far as this game goes, I mean, I, I don't know. I thought it was kind of a, a cute idea, if if a little weird. <laughs> what I do mean, you catch? What, what Pokemon do you get? My It's probably just a cash grab trying to like recapture some of that go experience, but you're not going and out. It might be. It might do well. I just. It will not be a second Pokemon Go. Oh, it Pokemon Sleep also works with the Pokemon Go Plus, which is a wearable design for Pokemon Go. Oh no, they're connected. I'm surprised they didn't just make it like that. Be it. Like Pokemon Go Plus is just Pokemon Sleep, but I guess Go Plus is still trying to track your steps. So. And you want to create a new brand so that you can get another revenue stream. Yeah, apparently you're trying to feed a Snorlax. It's like known for sleeping. What are you gonna feed it with? Your dreams. It isn't no dream. Maybe it should have been like hypno or something. You're feeding it your dreams. No, because hypno be kidnapping children. We don't yeah. want that. We don't want to spread that message. Mm-mm. Yeah. So interesting game. I don't know. I just saw it. I I'm not gonna try. I'm not even really gonna bother trying this. But like, concepts neat. It's always like kind of fun to see what Pokemon will. Because like Pokemon is one of those brands like we were saying earlier, where like they kind of have the star power to try almost anything. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And like people will at least give it a shot. I don't think it's going to be the next Pokemon Go, but maybe there's something here. Somebody was saying that it isn't compatible with Pokemon Bank and that that was kind of controversial because people were like, well, what the fuck is the point? Well, maybe it's not compatible yet. That's or what is not Pokemon Bank home. Home. home yeah. Bank. Pokemon Bank is bank is old. Kind of old. Thing. Bank is gone. I yeah. Think. Pokemon home. And they say it's not compatible with that. So maybe somewhere down the line. All right, guys, I guess it's time. We go to the pot. Yeah, uh, I think that's all the stories. So, all right. So, gonna draw two cards. A lot of new questions we did ask very recently on the community tab. Be sure that you're following and subscribed to the channel so you can submit questions. According to Alec, there are some good ones. I have not seen them yet. Hey, don't put that on me. These might be horrible. They could be. Oh, I got you my both two cards. Okay. Let's grab them both in one. All right, I'll grab my two as well. And down right. goes the pot. I'll start off. Okay. Would you rather support for past non-meta decks or support for past meta decks going forward? So I guess the question is, would you rather for new support to be made for decks that weren't good 
in the past or decks that were? I don't really have a strong opinion on that, but I'll say uh, probably decks that weren't, I guess. Maybe deserve it a little more. But I, I kind of like the idea of uh, meta decks of the past getting new support because then you, you can kind of like relive their heyday in a sense. I mean, the good like news- I thought was happening with the Fire Fist support. So the good news about... Um, I like a little upset about that. A little warm. Oh, well, listen, the good news is that, like, honestly, I feel like Konami doesn't discriminate. They kind of just, right they now. give support to everyone. They're dishing out left and right. I think it's weird that, so Yu-Gi-Oh! always exists in this perpetual state of, like, everyone wants support for everything. Yep. Like, it's a huge community, so it makes sense. A lot of people, you know, like, when's the new this support? When's the new that support? When are they going to give this support? And I think that in the process of asking about it, it kind of gives this impression that, like, Konami just neglected all these poor archetypes. But, like, they, so many archetypes now get new support. It actually kind of, a lot just goes over my head. Yeah. Like, sets will come out, and they'll, like, there are certain sets in Yu-Gi-Oh, right, they'll introduce new archetypes or support kind of the current set of archetypes, like Despier or something, or Vsys or whatever, right? But then other times, there's, like, sets that are kind of like, I think a good example is, like, Photon Hypernova, and... And or Cyberstorm Axis, they're kind of both like this, where it's like just like 15 different archetypes just get support. Yeah. It might only so be much. like two cards each, like one or two cards each, but like a bunch of archetypes will just get support. And it can be so much, and this isn't a bad thing, I'm not complaining, but it can be so much that you actually like forget it and it just gets forgotten about like by the collective consciousness. And then we still just find ourselves complaining that Konami still hasn't supported so and so in this many years. But like, just decks are just getting support. I mean, Konami is slowly checking the boxes of things they've given support to in these like in this recent iteration of Yu-Gi-Oh. Yeah, so I gotta give them credit for that. But yeah, to answer the question, I don't have a strong like preference for it. I think that it's cool when a old meta deck kind of gets to explore something new. Although usually power creep ensures that like even when a deck like when Shadal's got like Shadal's Schism and like App Cologne and stuff like yeah. kind of early twenty twenty. Those specific cards were used a fair bit, but it by no means like vaulted Shadal into like tier one, I would say. The Shadal no. kind of invoked Dogmatic a thing. I guess you count that. That was like a thing for a while, but. It's actually kind of crazy how Shadals have just faded into uh, relative or relative obscurity now. Yeah. When at one point, hated that deck. <laughs> what you got? Okay, so my question Will Yu Gi Oh last to the 50th anniversary? That is an interesting question. I didn't think we're gonna. You think we got twenty five more years in this thing? I don't. <laughs> yeah, I just say I don't know if I do, but, um, but does Yu Gi Oh? Hmm. So my like maybe not super pleasant answer is I don't actually think so. I'm not saying that I hope it dies. I'm not saying it's on the way out or anything like that. I don't even think it's like showing signs of that. But more so that I think like Yu Gi Oh kind of in the form that it's in. I don't see 25 more years of this. I don't think this format, this way that we currently play it does. Maybe the franchise does with some type of a reboot or a rebrand or a sequel. Right. But yeah, I don't know if our Yu-Gi-Oh has 25 more years in it. By our Yu-Gi-Oh, like you mean? The advanced format, this master duel, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, um... That's probably true. I mean, I sometimes when I look at these new Yu-Gi-Oh packs, I feel like we're just like burning the midnight oil. 
for in, in all the good and the bad ways where it's like, okay, we get these hundred card new sets. And I'm just like, man, sets are 100 cards. It's crazy because, like, we're doing, you know, uh, Slifer Slackers now. And, like, hey. in that, in the period that we're currently in, it kind of changes a little later in a GX. But, like, there's, like, 60 cards per set. Like, main mm-hmm. series set is 60 cards. But now in Yu-Gi-Oh, like, new sets are 100 cards. And then there's side sets, like, you know, the Wild Survivors and the Battles of Legends and all the other stuff. And it's like, man, there's so many new cards come out. I kind of sometimes feel like, are they just going to, like, burn themselves out of stuff? Like, they I feel like could at some point you run out of ideas. I feel like they could afford to slow down. I I would not complain about a set being eighty cards instead of a hundred, or like kind of spacing new products out more. Maybe some people like that. You know, just just keep it going. Like new stuff, new stuff, They're new like stuff. Like watching the databases numbers just jump up each each set. Uh, yeah, but like to me, I guess it's similar to the last question when we were talking about like kind of archetype support. I feel like archetypes will just get this support, and people just forget. Like, I just feel like I just don't even remember so some much stuff. Of like, so many things come out. And, like, again, not saying that's bad, but just that we could probably afford to slow down a hair. Well, now, as far as, like, you know, making the 50th anniversary, I think in the current state that Yu-Gi-Oh's in, and by state, I don't mean, like, it's dying. I mean, like, just like you said, the way that we engage with Yu-Gi-Oh now, I wonder. I just don't know if, like, even consumer, like, people, like, kind of cultural tastes and stuff, will look I'll end with this I want it to hit its 50th and I think that the Yu-Gi-Oh like IP will obviously I just don't know if like just this TCG that we're playing right now in its exact way that it, that kind of is I don't know if it will or not I, I know um, in 10 years I will tell myself for a fact that there's that you are not allowed to play Yu-Gi-Oh ever again I, I might play the video games, but as far as buying cards and playing the, the physical card game, yeah. when I'm in my 40s, I'm going to tell myself, you are you are done with that. It's time to do something else. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, to be clear, I, I'm not even saying that it won't, but just like I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if it didn't. I might meet up with some buddies over cigars, and we might, we might play a little bit of Yu-Gi-Oh! Yeah, that'll every, be. Once every month. I'll be in know, the nursing home playing Master the, uh, Duel. <laughs> You know, when the women let us out, you know how it is. Yeah. All right. Uh, Next your question. Card. Okay. Could Yugi and Kaiba hang IRL with real duelists and like re- and if their decks had the real cards? Interesting question. What do you think? So. Like we're like Seto Kaiba, Yugi Moto. They're like hanging out. They're going to tournaments. They're buying packs. I want to say them boys would get washed because they don't read cards. That's what I want to believe. Uh-huh. However, if Yugi still has that magic top deck power. That's true. Because, you guys, you know how many how many games have you played that have come down to just a top deck? And it's either out or it's not. Yugi will get that every time. Like Yeah. I think Yugi would run tables, honestly. He just he clean up. Kaiba though, then again, Kaiba's thing is really having the most expensive cards, right? Yeah, Kaiba would have the top meta deck. If so else. Kaiba, if nothing else, will be competitive. You know, like money is not an object. His whole deck would just be starlights. Oh, okay. Yeah, my other question was something that we'd asked. Like, kind of, it was so similar to something we answered last oh, okay. week. I was gonna. Um, my, my real quick thing about um. The Yugi Kaiba thing is that 
something that somebody pointed out to me a few years back is actually that Yugi and Kaiba's whole like thing is that they just pick up new rules and like adapt to them really quickly. Like there's a lot of times in the anime where they are faced with like, you know, Yugi has to learn dungeon dice monsters basically like in a day. And he gets good enough at it to beat Duke Devlin, who made it. He created and lost. Yeah, and kind of the same thing applies. Like, whenever, like, a weird duel situation happens, they just sort of adapt. So, I think in that way, they might not be, you know, as bad at it as you might think. I could definitely see Yugi using kind of whatever the big spellcaster archetype of the day is. And Kaiba would be playing, like, Dragon Link and, you know, it... <sighs> that hurt is hearing it. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> That's kind of crazy to think about, but um, okay. And then last question: What archetype deserves to be in an anime? This is an easy one. The Albaz lore. Oh, okay. Like, yeah, that's, I mean, uh, that's it's all, all of that's them. Fair. Like, it's a travesty that we have not. That they don't at least do. I know this isn't a novel idea. Everyone says it, but it's true. Like Pokemon Origins and Pokemon Generations and those like oh, other type of shorts like... that they do for Pokemon that are like. You know, maybe it's like once a week or once a month or whatever, and they're like kind of five minutes long. Do that for the lore archetypes. Like, more so than any of them, Albaz has probably been the one archetype where they've really, like, more and more people seem to know that it's a lore archetype Mm -hmm. and kind of follow it. And even you could say the World Legacy one before it could also be a great anime. But they don't do it, and I feel like that's a bit of a... Missed opportunity. I mean, there's that uh, there's that manga about Sky Strikers. I would like to see the Albaz, uh, the Albaz story, at least in manga form. Even if I don't get to see it in an anime, though, it, I think it does deserve it. Yeah, like I don't know. I think that that could be fun, especially if it was something that was kind of running alongside the cards release. So because a lot of like the the Albaz archetypes are. Were, are or were, like, you know, kind of meta in their time. Mm-hmm. Dogmatica and Tri-Brigade and Sprite and Therion and whatever sorts of all that stuff. Like, it would be cool if the story is also unfolding as those decks are, as human players are playing them in tournaments and winning and, like, it's kind of a cool... It almost feels like you are playing out the story as it happens. And I think that would be fun. Like, sometimes when I play on Master Duel, I'll, like, match up against these decks and be like, hey, we're kind of technically, like, playing out a bit of the story here. Like, when I play Dogmatica and I face Tri-Brigade, I'm like, this actually kind of happened. So it would be cool if, like, what do you think the freq- the right frequency would be for that? Like, a new, like, kind of five, six-minute thing every month? I mean, uh, I mean, I don't know. Well, it should be, like, 20-minute really, episodes. Anime doesn't really do that, so I have no idea. I mean, I think just what Pokemon Horizon, when, when they were, not Horizons, um, Pokemon, like, Origins like generations or, generations or origins, something like that. That was like it was about once a month, right? I think I don't, I don't remember. I don't remember. It's been a while. Yeah, I think like that'd be cool, and maybe you make it like a five to ten minute episode, and just yeah, I'd like it. I mean, you know what archetype I think should be in an anime? Hmm. The new illusionist support, and it should be used by a protagonist in a new Yu-Gi-Oh anime that's running right now. Well, you're going to have to wait for Go Rush to end. Sorry. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, hopefully they can figure out, like, some sort of a way to utilize these lore archetypes. Because we don't even get the lore books. Nope. So, like, at least give us that. Christ. Help us out, Kanan. Come on. Anyway, I think that's about it for this episode. Yeah, that was uh, the pod of greed. Yeah, we've been having some sort of longer episodes lately. Hopefully you guys don't mind. I know there's some people who could 
listen to this for hours, but. But, um, you know, we don't even have hours to record. Yeah, I always try to, like, at least maybe cap it at two, but who knows. Anyways, hopefully you guys have enjoyed. Make sure that you are following the podcast and, of course, subscribing to the channel and all that other great stuff. We'll see you guys in the next one. Past turn. turn.